Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone who uh, likes simple, 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 simple recipes for a healthy future. And uh, today's guest is Beth Dooley. She's the author of Perennial Kitchen, Simple Recipes for a Healthy Future. Welcome. Oh, it's so nice to be here, Laura. Thank you. Yeah, it's nice. We were talking about in person, yeah. you know, past yeah, the vaccine. Exactly. It's so yeah. nice. <laughs> so um, you have quite um, a long um, background in local foods, and now you have your newest book out. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, you know, I've been covering the local food scene for about over 40 years now, and what always interests me is flavor. Okay, what informs what informs flavor? I mean, why does something taste different? For instance, why does a carrot that comes from the farmer's market that's grown in organic soil taste different, better than the carrot that is shipped in from California? I mean, what? Why? Why does that happen? That, um, why does a particular f- grain, you know, taste different if it's grown in California than if it's grown in Minnesota? I mean, what informs that? And uh, you know, it's just curiosity, really. And so when I began to understand that how and where a food is grown is going to reflect its flavor, then I began to unpeel that sort of proverbial onion. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, it has to do with the soil. So then what about that soil? It's got to be healthy soil. And what makes healthy soil? Well, you can't have healthy soil if you're dumping a lot of toxic chemicals on that soil. Well, what happens if you don't dump toxic chemicals on that soil. Well, you use ground cover and you use perennials and you rotate crops. Well, what happens if you do that? What happens to those farms? Well, they start to look like farms where there's a lot of living cover. There is more green. There are animals on that land. Well, what does that mean for the farmer? What it means for the farmer is that he's not endangering his or her children with those toxic chemicals. It means that pollinators will return to the land. It means that you can hear songbirds and frogs on that land again. Oh, well, what about those communities? Well, it means that maybe those farmers will then be able to bring more workers on the land because that kind of farming is more labor intensive. Those are great jobs, especially for people that don't want to sit in an office all day. You get to work on a farm. What does that mean for that those communities that have been decimated for those main streets where there are empty storefronts? Well, there'll be people living in those towns again. There'll be coffee shops again. Maybe there'll be Internet. So the kids that go to that high school don't have to drive to McDonald's to get on Internet to do their homework. What about the people that live in the cities? Well, there'll be more of that really good nutritious food grown. The price of that food will drop, and we'll all have access to better food if that happens. It might also inspire some of those community gardens to really get up and going because you can grow a whole lot of food in a very small area, which you as a permaculture farmer know. Right, right. right. Now, you just packed a whole bunch in there. I did. It's, I know. I mean, it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to slow down here because it all starts with flavor and you yeah. can. And, and you know, after after the, um, after you're eating from your garden, yeah. I mean, you try to go into a restaurant that has frozen broccoli from wherever mm-hmm. and you taste the difference. You do. You absolutely do. Yes. Yes. So we know there's yeah. a big difference there. Yes. And then the ecological problems with the way that our conventional farming is done mm-hmm. is really heart-wrenching once you start mm-hmm. looking at it, especially um, how much uh, how much topsoil we've lost. Right. That's a, that's a crisis. Exactly. Yes. And yes. then the, the, the way that the conventional farming does it with the artificial stuff mm-hmm. that all ends up with nitrates in the water yes. and then with the – the Gulf, what's happening in the Gulf of Mexico? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly right. So I think to me, 
You've just identified a lot of the issues with, and I don't know why we call it conventional. It's really chemical farming. Chemical. Right? I was calling it industrial too. Yeah, industrial, industrial. farming. Exactly. Yeah. So we we know those issues, and I for years I felt like Chicken Little, you know, running around going, "Oh my God, the sky's falling down. We're getting poisoned. This is terrible." And then I began to look at some of the solutions that are going on in agriculture, and there is a term being bandied about. It still doesn't have a definite definition, but it's regenerative agriculture. And what mm-hmm. that suggests is taking a step beyond sustainability, which implies staying the same. Regenerative agriculture works to improve the land, improve the topsoil, you know, regenerate our rural communities, bring, you know, really good food into our cities. So it's about regenerating a whole lot of things as well as really good food. And I think what really piqued my curiosity, because as I said, I'm just kind of this like, okay, now what happens next? What happens next kind of a writer is to try and understand what else is going on beyond just local food, which is terribly important. But I also think that that thinking, that worldview is now being applied by our university, especially University of Minnesota researchers who are using you know, age-old processes of hybridizing seeds to make them more vigorous so that they can withstand climate change and doing it so that farmers that farm on larger tracts of land, not just small vegetable growers, but farmers who are growing wheat and corn and soy, have other plants to plant that don't require the same kind of toxins that the industrial model requires. So it's by looking at what the University of Minnesota, for instance, is doing with grains like Kernza and with the oat breeding program and with their barley breeding program to bring more of those grains onto the land in a way that's larger than than just growing vegetables, I think it's important for people to know about that. I think it's important for people to know about the hazelnut work that's being done. Hazelnuts are fabulous. And the American Hazelnut Company is working with growers all over our region to get more hazelnuts on the land. They're smaller. Our variety is smaller. They're delicious. That's what interests me. They're really delicious. Mm -hmm. And up in uh, Ashland, Wisconsin, outside Ashland, Northland College has a processing plant. And the American Hazelnut Company is toasting those nuts for sale, pressing those nuts into a gorgeous hazelnut oil that tastes better than anything from, you know, any of the imported hazelnut oils coming in from France or from Oregon, and then taking what's left over and grinding that into a gluten-free flour. I think that's really exciting. So why why wouldn't I buy that oil? Because it's not only it's delicious. Let's start with that. I wouldn't buy it if it didn't taste good. But it's also got all of these other benefits, these ecological benefits that are improving so much. And so that's kind of the yeah. story in this book. And that's, that's been the uh, the theme of this show um, yeah. throughout. It's like yeah. take a sad song, the yeah. industrial conventional yeah. egg system, and yep. what that has done to animals. Yep. I, mean, I was just talking yes. to someone who has the their dog in the office and it's like I, I, I don't want to kill my buzz but when right. I see dogs playing I think about what happens to pigs in factory yes. farming and yes. chickens and, and yes. so and that, that we that, yes. that's, that's how we're eating most of our calories in this country exactly. and, and then it, it, it's not working for the farmers and it's, it's like we got to get out of these binary things because the right. farmers will say I'm, I'm not the bad guy it's like we're all 
Right. We own the system. Right, we do. And they're not the bad guys. They don't they're they're looking for solutions. And I think to me that's what's most heartening is the work that's being done by Gabe Brown, for instance. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've yes, seen the, yes, the movie, course. right? Kiss the Ground. It's a great movie. Uh-huh. Who, you know, was on the verge of collapse and then began to farm using regenerative practices, right? Again, all of those old-timey methods, but using today's technology. So I think that's the other standing. I'm not saying let's go back to the 1800s. Nobody is. Mm -hmm. But let's be smart about this. Let's use – let's marry that heritage uh, wisdom to the technology we have today to breed better seeds – to make all of those seeds available to everybody so nobody owns them, right? Oh, that's so important. That's so I'm going to, nobody owns the seeds. That right. is very important. Exactly, exactly. So those kinds of things. But then also use the, um, the technology we have at our fingertips to expand that onto the larger farms. Now you've did something very important in this book. What you're doing is connecting What's going on at the University of Minnesota, what's going on in the regenerative agriculture movement with what I can cook in my house in a quick and easy way that's affordable and healthy. Exactly. And that's yeah. what we're going to talk about most of the show yeah. is oh, how, we actually, how we actually what do, do we that. What do we do with it? What do we do with it? Because, you know, I mean, Kernza and yeah. oat groats yeah. and cornmeal yeah. and hazelnuts yeah. and, and incorporating some of those foods back into our diet. And the other thing I love about the way your book started, it had such a calm beginning. Oh, thank and, you. Yeah, I like that. So, um, uh, so the calm beginning, I'm going to have to get to it. Um, yeah. After a busy day at work and the week's raging headlines, like we're not tired of that, the week's <laughs> raging headlines, the very act of kneading dough, chopping carrots, sizzling onions helps me relax gather myself, feel composed, and hopeful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, you name some of the farms that the food comes from. So it becomes even more of a holistic act. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a way of connecting. You know, because to me, I'm never, even if I'm by myself in the kitchen, I'm never cooking alone. You know, I feel like there's, I'm standing, you know, there with my grandmother, for instance, who taught me how to knead that dough. I'm there with my mother who liked to sizzle onions. I'm there with Kathy Drager, the beef farmer who told me about how she raises her cattle. I mean, all of these voices come flooding in and I think about them and I'm sort of surrounded by these people that really care about nourishment, care about flavor, care about sharing this wealth that we have. We have such abundance with each other, right? And I think it doesn't matter what what your heritage is. You know, you see this in communities all over the country. I mean, I worked with Sean Sherman, for instance, on mm-hmm. the Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen. Which won her James Beard Award. <laughs> it did. It did. But he's all about sharing that knowledge. He's all about sharing that good food with community and taking, you know, making, understanding that that worldview, that approach to food, that reverence for food and that reverence for ingredients um, is something he wants people to know about, right? It's it's no different than what's going on in many of our black communities where people get together at a funeral, for instance, and it's just like a potluck galore and that food is shared. So this isn't, you know, this isn't just an isolated kind of, you know, local food, yuppie kind of, you know, mindset. This is something that we can draw on the wealth of information and traditional practices from around the world. Great. Well, we're going to be taking a break. Mm-hmm. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about how to cook in a nice, simple way 
that's loving and that's holistic and that supports the earth and the water and each other. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and our guest today is Beth Dooley, um, cookbook author and uh, uh, James Beard Award-winning cookbook author. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. A student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone who likes recipes, simple recipes for a healthy future. And uh, in studio with me today is Beth Dooley. She's the author of Perennial Kitchen, Simple Recipes for a Healthy Future. Now, you were talking earlier in the last segment how your mom's always with you, your grandma. When you're cooking, it's like this whole relationship that's with you. And I know in my house growing up, we had really one cookbook. It had a red and white cover. I'm not going to name it. But it was like her go-to book. And I, I see this book as as that same type of go-to book for the regenerative food movement. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah, you. That means a lot to me. Thank you. It has yeah. it, it, it has the type of basics mm-hmm. That I think people really need, and and you mentioned it before, and I know I'm not going to remember where the conversation came, but someone said a lot of times the cooking books look so intimidating mm-hmm. that people mm-hmm. are really afraid to cook. Right. I don't know how to cook. I mean, that means you know, there's that intimidation around how to cook, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so um, and so this is a simple book which mm-hmm. I like. But it does have this word called pantry, which may seem kind of intimidating to people. <laughs> a pantry. Well, you know, a pantry, I, actually, it was meant to be liberating. Because <laughs> once you have the foods that you really love or you want to use at your side, you're not running around going out every two minutes, especially, you know, we've just come out of the pandemic, right? But I remember, um, especially then in the you know doldrums of being locked down that it was really nice to have a few basic foods that i could rely on and whip something up without feeling like i'm out of stuff and that's one of the premises of the book is that it needs to be really simple and these particular foods are so versatile that if you have two or three different kinds of beans, it doesn't matter if you're out of one of them because you can use the other beans in the same darn recipe. If you have, you know, say, oh, uh, cornmeal and um, uh, rye berries and um, oat groats in your pantry, you can make a breakfast cereal. You can make granola. You can make... Um, Oh, a bowl, a whole grain bowl with lots of local veggies. You can make uh, the bottom of a stir fry, for instance. You can pile things on top of. You can make risotto. I mean, there are all these different things that you can do. So what I wanted to do was kind of liberate people and say, hey, if you have a few basic things, you can do lots of different things with them. You have one, you know, one basic ingredients, but you can play with it in lots of different ways. And I wanted that to come through because it's it's a book that's meant to empower cooks um, because a lot of these foods are unfamiliar. They're just new on the market or they're foods that have always been there but we've ignored them. And it's a way to lift them up. 
but not make it so complicated people would be, oh, I don't know if I'm going to try that, right? right. So they're really familiar recipes. Because they're really – and so um, you can go to the co-op and mm-hmm. Seward Co-op is a partner mm-hmm. and they have – you can buy these things in bulk, which yep. is so much better. Exactly. That. And then um, I use glass mason jars mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. on the glass mason jar I have the number that the bin is in. I love it. That's I know. And I must yeah. admit when I first – I think it was my husband like 30 years ago. I was like, really? You do that? It seems so like tricky. But once you get into it, it yeah. is super simple. And when you need, when you're out, you just you wash the container and you put mm-hmm. it in your little mm-hmm. to go bag, and you know that's what you need to pick mm-hmm. up. And mm-hmm. um, so um, you know, there's having that active pantry. So um, what does your pantry look like? Like what I said in the book, yeah. <laughs> you know. And I love the idea of the glass mason jars because when you fill them with different colored beans mm-hmm. and they're all on the shelf with the other beans, it's so pretty. It right? is. It's, it's really gorgeous. pretty. It's yeah. very pretty. And yeah. it, yes, yes. And yeah. it, as you said, you you know you'll always have some food, yeah. and then you can go to the farmers market. But you don't even. It, it takes away a lot of the struggle once you get used to exactly i know i always have lentils i know i always have barley exactly you know exactly so let's now we're going to take a deep dive mm-hmm. into grains yes. i'm going to say okay mm-hmm. so um talk about grains well they're you know first of all they're delicious right and they are versatile they're really interchangeable so anything you do with rye berries which people often forget to use you can do with rice right i mean why why not try instead of brown rice why not try cooking whole wheat berries or try cooking barley or try cooking something else that's local that has all of these ecological benefits instead of flying rice in from California or from China. Um, And they're not any more expensive. They have more nutrients in them. They're full of protein and complex carbohydrates. A lot of them are heart healthy. Barley especially and oats are especially heart healthy. So they're a much better um, carbohydrate because they also have some proteins in them. And they're just a really nice, delicious food. And use them. I use them the same way as I would pasta, for instance, or white rice. Wow. Yeah. And they're delicious. So yeah. we want to get into some recipes, but also building this ecosystem for Minnesota farmers because mm-hmm. Minnesota farmers can grow barley. That's right. And That's now, right. Uh, so what type of, you don't recommend pearl barley? You, I don't recommend pearl barley. And that's a great question because it's a polished grain. And so both the um, the ho- the wholeness of it has been polished off. You don't get the fiber. You um, and then hulled barley. It's called hulled barley or hullless barley, which is a even newer variety. Hasn't been polished, and so it has all of the attributes of a whole grain. It has all of the um, fiber, more of the protein, and more of the nutrients because it hasn't been stripped down. Pearl barley is not considered a whole grain. So that's the difference. Hulled barley or hullless barley will take a little longer to cook. Pearl barley cooks in about 15 minutes or so. The others cook in about 25 minutes. It's a 10-minute difference. And, you know, the nice thing about these grains, the other thing I love about them, is that they, once they're cooked, they will keep in your refrigerator for more than a week. So Mm. what I like to do is cook a big batch of different kinds and then put them in covered containers, you know, airless like jars or something, stick them in the refrigerator, and then you have these whole grains at your ready to use in a salad, to use in a breakfast cereal, to throw into a soup, to use in a stir fry, you know, those kinds of things. So, um, so they're again, they're really versatile, and they make this kind of quick, healthy meal super easy. 
Yeah, and that's what I find too. I make a big pot of beans and you find things right. to eat and you don't get tired of it because you're making different things each time. And exactly. so I kind of cook for leftovers myself. Exactly. And yeah. so uh, talk uh, some simple recipe for barley for someone who's never cooked. Yeah, I, you know, again, I like using it instead of risotto. If you like making risotto, use it for that. If you like doing stir fries, use it as the base for stir fry. Stir fry up your vegetables and chicken, for instance. If you have made your own sauce or if you've bought one of those nice organic sauces, just dump that on top and you're good to go. That I would consider that a bowl, right? Mm-hmm. You can use the barley in a nice salad. Use it instead of um, couscous for a tabbouleh or something, you know, um, the cooked barley. That becomes the base of a salad. You can throw lots of chopped tomatoes and fresh chopped herbs and some garlic and a little lemon juice and oil and you're it's delicious. And you talked a little bit about Kernza, but to talk a, a little bit more about that because that, that grain holds a lot of environmental promise. It's a really interesting grain. And there's a variety called Clearwater that the University of Minnesota is planting down in southern Minnesota because we've had such trouble with our water system down there. And so it has a very long taproot system. It, um, the taproots go down about 20 feet. So it has this potential to do a lot of good on the landscape. It also is wonderful for pollinators and for songbirds. And But the real value to me is that it produces a grain that can be milled like wheat. So bar, uh, kerns of flour tastes a little bit like rye. It has a different gluten content than wheat flour. So um, it's not appropriate for celiac, but it might work for people that have gluten sensitivities. And um, it's absolutely delicious. I mean, I like using it in cookies. I like I makes a great uh, shortbread because you can taste the um, sort of nuttiness of the grain. And uh, it can be mixed into a yeasted dough. It's because of the gluten content. It's not great for a dough that you would use yeast in. Um, but it is really good as a feeder for sourdough. If you're used to feeding your sourdough with rye, use Kernza instead. Fascinating. Um, we're talking with Beth Dooley, um, a James Beard Award winner in 2018 of the best cookbook in the United States, mm-hmm. and out with a new book called Perennial Kitchen, Re- Simple Recipes for a Healthy Future. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. In studio with us is Beth Dooley, um, author of several cookbooks, including her newest one, The Perennial Kitchen, Simple Recipes for a Healthy Future. And when before we went to break, we were talking about pantry, mm-hmm. talking about um, uh, having grains in your pantry, how beautiful they are. Just put them in the glass mason jars, go to the co-op go, and, 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 and get them in bulk and have that pantry so you know what's available. So in addition to grains, beans and legumes. Yeah, I mean, beans and legumes are a wonderful source of plant-based protein. Um, They make beautiful soups. They're great in salads. And what I like about them is they're so pretty. We just talked about stocking your pantry um, and putting everything in glass jars with labels. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so pretty when you look at those glass jars filled with different color beans, right? Uh They're beautiful. Um, And they all have different, slightly different flavors, but the truth is, I buy them for their names. I love the names <laughs> like Tiger's Eye and Ireland Creek Annie and Jacob's Cattle. I mean, they're so fanciful and so fun, and they really also speak to the heritage of these beans. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And even though they have slightly different flavors, they're really interchangeable. I mean, you can certainly use Jacob's Cattle, for instance, in a chili recipe that traditionally calls for a kidney bean or a black bean. You can use a kidney bean or a black bean in a salad recipe that calls for Jacob's Cattle. The one thing I really love, and it's a very short, 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 and I'm sure you've enjoyed these too, short time um, frame, is when you can get those fresh dried beans. And I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but there's nothing better than those beans before they've been dried. And they're available at the end of the summer, usually at looking the farmer's market. Um, But they're absolutely delicious because they cook in a snap. You don't have to soak them. And then you really, really do taste the flavor of those individual beans. And all they need is like a little bit of oil, a little bit of salt, and they're just fabulous on their own. Oh, yes. And um, beans are natural nitri- nitrogen yes, fixers. They are. So yes. they're fantastic for the um, um, yes. environment. They actually um, help fight climate change by That's eating right. those, those beans. That's right. That's right. And they return that nitrogen to the soil. Mm-hmm. So they're, they balance out anything that's extracted, those nutrients from the soil, they put it back in. So they do a lot of work for us. Yeah, and okay, and uh, but um, one of the most important things about beans is to take the time to soak them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they work much better if you soak them. To be honest, there are times I've forgotten to soak them. You just cook them longer, especially yeah. if they're bean from the co-op, for instance, because they tend to rotate versus beans that are sold in you know the ones that are industrial industrial arrays and they've been in a plastic bag sitting on the grocery shelf for God knows how long. The ones that you can get in bulk in the different co-ops um, are tend to be fresher and tend to need less soaking time and less cooking time. Same thing. And you can buy now local beans at our farmer's markets. There's mm-hmm. some really good growers that are drying mm-hmm. and selling their own beans, and they're wonderful. Yep. Yep. I've done that several times. Some simple bean recipes. I love bean soups. The other thing I really love is making hummus with whatever leftover beans I have. So, for instance, if I've made a soup with beans and then I have leftover beans, I'll cook them more. And then just turn them like you would um, chickpeas into a hummus. And then you can throw in, if you have leftover baked sweet potatoes or you've got leftover beets or something like that, throw that into the blender with them as well. Super simple, lots of garlic, a little salt Mm -hmm. and pepper, some lemon juice, and you've got this wonderful, very healthy dip. And some Um, oil in tahini. Yep, some oil in tahini, Um, although I've done it without either the oil. You know, I've done it with oil um, and skip the tahini part. Sometimes I'll throw in yogurt, for instance, and Mm. then it just makes a really nice dip or spread. I'll call it hummus, but it's really just a bean spread. Bean spread, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and I like that freedom because even one of the things I liked in here was the hazelnut pesto recipe. Yes. And I think of hazelnuts and I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm going to mortgage my house to buy some pine nuts these days, right? Right. right? Right. But but so we can, we don't have to use pine nuts to make a pesto. No, we don't. We can use um, hazelnuts. We can use walnuts. We can use, you know, there's some, in some of the co-ops and I've seen them at Seward often sell the hickory nuts that are coming up from Missouri. Those are delicious. I mean, why wouldn't we use those? They're great. They've got great flavor. They're local. Maybe they cost a little bit more, but they're certainly not not as expensive as the pine nuts. Well, and when microwaves first came out, they were very expensive. Right. And so if we're going to support this this local food system, I mean, it makes so much sense to be growing hazelnuts and and, and, and not in mountain, mountain, to, to, to move away from the monoculture industrial right. approach to the regenerative approach, which includes nuts and animals on the land and 
um, and that holistic thinking. But you know, it's harder for those companies now mm-hmm. to to make it because of all sorts of reasons. Right. But as right. we support that, then we can adjust the finances. That's right. Of it and too. once once those farmers know that there's demand for it, that's really our role as cooks. Mm-hmm. And I have to I I give um, really good gardeners so much credit. I love that you're a permaculture gardener. Mm-hmm. I have a shady backyard and not a whole lot grows, and I have a brown thumb. So I love going to the farmers market. Mm-hmm. I love going to the co-op. I love being able to support this food. And you know, to me. Again, I, I'm always getting into this tangle with people that are arguing it's too expensive. It's really not. It's really not because if you value your health, um, it's important. And if you look at what people in France pay for food on an annual basis, they spend about 75 to 80 percent of their disposable dollar on food. Really? I didn't know that. <laughs> yep. And guess how much they spend on health care? 15 to 20 percent. Well, okay. So and guess what those numbers are in the United States? They're reversed. So there are a whole lot of – and I'm again, I'm not blaming the farmers. I'm not blaming the effort to grow a lot of food. I think that was done with you know good intentions. But I also think there were a lot of unintended consequences that have happened as the result of using these industrial practices. And I think now we can be a generation. That's all happened within a generation, really within our lifetimes. Yeah. We now can be a generation that reverses that or at least provides some solutions. Without a doubt. And I think assuming goodwill mm-hmm. just kind of helps maybe yeah. relax. I mean, assume yeah. goodwill. Yeah. Um, and then as far as the idea of um, um, organic food being too expensive, once you learn to cook with That's grains right. and legumes, That's right. barley That's right. is not Expensive. Exactly. Exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. Packaged food, fast food costs more if, you know. Yeah. And before COVID, our, our, the lifespan of humans is going down in yes. this country. And that was before yes. COVID. It's, it's worse now. But yes. a lot of people tie it to the way our food is. Yes. That there's actually less nutrition in the food because the soil is depleted. Exactly. And the USDA has shown that our fruits and vegetables on average are 40% less nutritious now than they were when my grandmother bought food at the supermarket, right? And that was a period of time with Victory Gardens where people grew a lot of their own food, grew lots and lots of food, and that was supported by the government, which is so interesting. If you look at those posters that hung in post offices and in government buildings, there were big posters that said, you know, be a soldier of the soil. You know, we work, work, work to grow food. And, you know, that was during World War One and World War Two. They also recognized that their soldiers weren't fit because they were getting heavy, eating a lot of processed food. And so they wanted people to get out and garden. And that's what the Victory Garden movement was all about. And that was funded by the Defense Department. That is fascinating. And I... I I, I want to assume goodwill, and I, I don't want to make too many assumptions, but I actually think there was an anti-farming movement alive. Oh yeah. oh yeah, that actually discouraged people. Right. That was after. That was right after World War II. Yeah. And that was because you know, for a variety of reasons. I mean, first of all, there were a lot of soldiers returning that wanted jobs, um, and so you know they found employment in. Food factories and that food factories that had been built to supply the soldiers with canned food and processed food. So, what do you do with them, right? What do you do mm-hmm. with the factories? What do you do? That's when aver- there was the advent of advertising. There were a lot of leftover chemicals that were used to make bombs that were also used to grow corn and soy. Right. And so, you know, I mean, there were a whole lot of there was a confluence of factors that fed that whole anti-farming movement and also helps help sell stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, 
you know, I mean, you begin to, again, unpeel that onion and you look at, you know, why and how those things change and you then understand that we have the capability to change back again. Right. Right. And, and yeah, and I, I've seen it. Um, so we've covered grains, beans, and then you read about fresh flour. Yeah. Flour. That's really yeah. fun. Isn't it fun? Yeah, I mean, I think fun. that's the other really fun thing when you look at what Bakersfield Flour and Bread is doing. And they're yes. phenomenal. Or yes. Sunrise Flour Mill. They're terrific. Oh, yes. Their flour is beautiful and you can taste something. I mean, most of us don't think of flour as having a flavor, right? But when it's freshly milled, you can really taste, the, you can taste the wheat in that flour. Um, and it performs differently. I mean, a really freshly milled flour, which has a shelf life. You'll see on the bags when you buy it, it'll have a, you know, use by X date or, or put in the refrigerator or freeze um, to retain the flavor and the nutrients. And um, what's exciting to me is how it performs. When you go to make a loaf of bread, there's an oven spring that you get from that um, that loaf of bread that you don't get if you're using an industrial flour, for instance. There's a flavor that comes through in a pound cake that you don't get when you're just using an all-purpose white flour. So to me, that's really exciting because it also speaks to the variety of wheat that's used, where that wheat is coming from, you know, the fact that it's fresh and so it has more nutrients. It, you know, all of those factors, I think, make for a more exciting food and a more delicious loaf of bread. And a lot of people are gluten intolerant, but right. there's some of these alternatives like hazelnut flour. Yes, yes, yes. And that's – now that's a gluten-free flour. Um, and gluten does a lot of work for us, right? Gluten, especially in breads, provides that loft because gluten is a protein. And in, um, in the Chinese language – that translates to muscle. So gluten is the muscle in a loaf of bread. And I think, um, you know, if you're going to use the alternative flours that are gluten-free, it's just good to be mindful of how they perform if you want bread, you know, if you want a loaf of bread. Alternatives, are, of course, are to make crackers with that grain. Um, for instance, oats don't have any gluten in them, and they make a fabulous cracker. They make a great oat cookie. They make a wonderful pound cake. Um, same thing with cornmeal. I mean, some of the other gluten-free grains do wonder, make wonderful baked goods, but not necessarily a, a risen loaf of bread. You know, and uh, making homemade crackers mm-hmm. now, and that's something I, I think mm-hmm. I did once, and it was a, not a good experiment. So I'm like, <laughs> that sounded really hard. But and I, I have to admit, I didn't make the recipes. But you kind of this book made it look a little easy. So how do you make a cracker? It's really easy. You only need a couple of ingredients. You need the flour. You need some sort of moisture, usually water. You need maybe a little bit of oil, and that's it. They're easier to make than cookies. The only tricky thing is to get them flat enough. But what I like to do is put them down on a baking sheet that's lined with um, parchment paper. Then smush it out. That's another technical term, smush. Smush it out and then put another sheet of um, parchment paper over the top and then roll it out. And that way you can get a nice thin dough across the parchment and then peel it off and score them. Stick them in the oven until they're dry, usually a low oven, about 300, 350. Um, And they take anywhere between 15 and 20 minutes. Um, Bring them out. Don't try and lift them off the the sheet yet. Let them cool on the sheet and they'll get crisp. They'll get crisp as they cool and then break them apart. They're easier than making cookies in my mind, which I sometimes find kind of fussy. So Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, and so that it is using that parchment paper. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's yep. okay. Uh, the, 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 um, so um, I want to talk a little bit. So cornmeal. Yeah. And, and, yeah. I, and I, um, I, I know we, we talked, especially with COVID and uh, we had that um, crisis with the food, it seemed yeah. like for a while yeah. that maybe we would not have food supplies. Mm-hmm. And I talked and someone said they were really glad that I talked about it because they did have emergency food in yes. their house and it made yeah. sense. Yeah. 
emergency cornmeal man. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I know this I know this 20-year-old and she can make yeah. like incredible meals. She calls it, "Oh, I'll just make corn girl." And she just takes some cornmeal and a can of corn and she does I mean she does it like a dozen different ways. So Yum. Yeah, yeah, that it, sounds delicious. It yeah. Is, well, cornmeal is one of those staples that you can keep in your pantry and do all kinds of things. You can make pancakes, you can make cornbread, you can make polenta, you know, yes, all that all great there. stuff. You're yeah. listening to Food Freedom Radio and we're talking to Beth Dooley. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, unless you're eating corn girl, then it's very cheap. <laughs> and someone who loves uh, simple recipes for a healthy future. And in studio with us is Beth Dooley, um, a James Beard award-winning cookbook writer. And um, it's, this is last question. Remind um, people of some of your background. As oh, far yeah. As food. Well, um, yeah, I had a grandmother who loved to cook. And uh, I got into writing about food because I love reading cookbooks. And, you know, I used to sneak upstairs when my mother thought I was doing homework and read The Joy of Cooking. So <laughs> I knew that I wanted to be a cookbook writer from very early on. I just, you know, in my mind, uh, recipes are stories with happy endings, and, and that's what I wanted to write. So um, so it's been really fun. I mean, I love it. I love sharing this information. I love talking to people about what they're making. I love the idea of being in people's kitchens, whether I'm actually there, whether it's just my cookbook is there. Nothing makes me happier than seeing one of the recipes that I've written torn out from the start. Tribune and covered with, you know, speckles of jam or, you know, sticky dough or something like that. So I just hope people, you know, just the whole idea is to inspire people to, to cook. I love to cook. Yeah, and and make it easy for some. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, sometimes there's it's fun to spend hours on something can be beautiful, and mm-hmm. sometimes you want something fast. So it's exactly. finding that right rhythm for you in that right moment. That's right? right. That's exactly right. Yes. And so, how many cookbooks do you have now? And Twelve. Twelve. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. And there's so much I still want to cover. Um, but so uh, this book, Perennial Kitchens, really tied to what food we can grow in Minnesota mm-hmm. and supporting farmers mm-hmm. and cooking in that way mm-hmm. that supports the farmers. Um, so one of the things you talk about is sprouting artisan grains. Yeah, absolutely. And not to correct you, but we're talking about regions. Regions. You know, right. we're talking about a food shed. We're talking about um, paying attention to what grows well in certain areas. So there's certain areas in the the um, you know in our region that are really appropriate for growing wheat, for instance. And there are other areas that grow apples better. So it's not that you have to choose one or the other. It's you know we want a diverse landscape, but we also want to know that not everything you know. So so it's I totally agree with you. And, and around. It's, it's, yeah. we use that word regenerative, but I like to. I mean, food that works for water. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So yeah. So thank you. So I'm sorry. You, I forgot. No, the question. no. The question. No, no worries. <laughs> um, I just found it um, sprouting artisan grains. Yeah, like a funny, yeah. fun tip. Yeah, it's really fun to do. It doesn't take very long. And what happens is because the grain begins to grow, begins to open up, like any seed, for instance, you're getting more of the nutrients out of it, right? And you can buy them already sprouted and dried, but that's a process you can do yourself. The other thing that happens is when you soak them like that, you can then just cook them. But you've already begun the process of the grain beginning to draw out its own nutrients, right? And they're delicious that way. You taste more of the grain that way. 
Yeah. Cool. And Backyard and Smokehouse mm-hmm. was this chapter. Mm-hmm. So this idea of animals on the land. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't tell you how many wonderful butchers, many of them, and farmers, many of them female, who were once vegan or vegetarian that have now returned to eating meat because they understand the benefits of having uh, animals on the land for a variety of reasons. First, because those animals graze and we need more cover on our land because those grasses are very good at capturing carbon and shooting it down back into the soil to nourish the soil. That also, because they're capturing carbon, helps mitigate climate change. And it's different than the CAFOs, the um, you know contained feeding operations, right, that are very cruel. They're huge. They're stinky. They cause all kinds of and problems. And they provide 98, 99% of the meat in the country. So it makes it really hard to have these conversations because those CAFOs and like I said earlier in the show, I just I look at a dog playing now and I think about the poor pig experience and that we have that separation that a dog is here and a cow or a pig is here. That's exactly right. And those operations release a lot of methane because it's contained. When you have an animal walking out on the land, right, that all gets diffused into the atmosphere and it's not a problem. When it's contained like that and it shoots up into the atmosphere, then it is a problem. And so it's just common sense. And the other thing is those animals, because they're raised to be full growth, they're treated more humanely. They're doing what animals do. They're out grazing, right? And then they're, you know, because they're treated well, they're not... Um, they're not anxious. They're not. So when they go to slaughter, which again, we don't want to talk about death. We don't like the idea of eating something that's dead, but humans have been doing that forever. And if it's done with respect and if it's done with thanks, it's a whole different mindset. It brings us much closer to um, the natural cycle of life. And I taught junior high for a while, and one of the projects, we had a student who wanted to raise chickens. And um, so as a school project, he raised and slaughtered his own chickens, and the other students helped. And it was really, really enlightening for those students because I don't think they'll ever look at packaged chickens sa- the same way. They ate it. Yes, they loved yes. it. And but I- it's, you know, it's like we Americans like to put things in silos. And, you know, again, it's about being respectful. It's about honoring our food and those cycles. I went to the energy fair, and I think it was Joel Celentine, but um, who said, okay, we're going to slaughter the chickens here. I want the kids to come up front. And it was a very mm-hmm. beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I still I, – I love uh, – I, I, I live with vegans, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's – there's uh, there's it's not an either-or. Mm-hmm. And given the fact that 98% of the – is is coming from the factory farmings mm-hmm. that we should um, mm-hmm. avoid at all costs. But down our last minute, and I yeah. still want to talk about what's up right now, kind of end on an up note, yes, you know? Yes, yes, yes. What would you eat right now that's oh, God, out there? asparagus and rhubarb, right? Right. Oh, my gosh. it's The rhubarb is going gangbusters, and so is the asparagus. So get out there. And, you know, asparagus is a wonderful vegetable, actually. It's not a sweet. And so, of course, it's delicious in pies and sauces and things like that. But I also like to use it as a savory. I like to stew it a little bit. And because it's got that tang, it's almost lemony in flavor or tart in flavor. Stew it a little bit. Use that juice like you would a vinegar and whisk it into a salad dressing and put it over your uh, blanched asparagus. And you've and then throw some hazelnuts on top and you've got a, 
mm. and asparagus salad. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so Beth Dooley, um, uh, James Beard, award-winning cookbook author. I'm sure you don't get tired of hearing that. <laughs> um, uh, Perennial Kitchen. Um, where can people find and connect with you? It's available in all the bookstores. Excelsior Bay Books, I know, has a stock of it out in Excelsior, Minnesota. And next then chapter? Next chapter has it, and so do the other independent bookstores. So shop local, shop independent. Next chapter's great. You know, just go to your local bookseller and ask for it. And, and have a nice calm time. Yes. I mean, you know, find that calm and that peace yeah. and that love and and that nutrition. Yes, exactly. That nutrition. So exactly. thank you so much for being with us, Beth Dooley, and thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you, Laura. Have a great day. Thanks.